You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And I'm Leonard Bout. And on this episode, we're talking about urbanism, mapping the soul of our cities. So in our episode on National Museums, we touched on the architecture and the curation of the buildings and how they were designed in such a way so that people would act in a particular way while they were in the buildings. So, for example, the corridors were designed such to control the flow of people and how they moved around within the museum, kind of like what we have in Ikea's today. And that was really the first of its kind. And it showed that even though sometimes we think things are as is, there's usually a particular purpose in mind when they're designed. And just like museums, cities and living spaces are designed by people with a particular purpose in mind. And one of the really interesting case studies of this is in Long Island, where this one engineer designed bridges such that they were just low enough to not let buses pass through. And that was really to stop people of lower social classes and particular racial groups from entering into the more affluent places within the island. But of course, cities are not just about the planning, but also about the ways in which inhabitants choose to use the spaces around them. And this tension between the two things often leads to very interesting and very unexpected outcomes. And in Barcelona, for example, in the 19th century, planners there were very taken by socialism, and in particular, by trying to create a very egalitarian city. And to do that, they settled on a grid system where houses would align the streets in a kind of square formation. And one of the details they decided on was in the junctions between these squares, they would cut off the corners so that horse-drawn carriages could make the turns more easily. But eventually, as cars came to replace horses, these cut-off corners were no longer necessary, so they filled them in. And what happened was that these little triangles came to be replaced by neighborhood cafes and parks and all kinds of other neighborhood spaces, which turned what was before a kind of stale area into areas with bustling neighborhood life. And small changes like that in ways where inhabitants 
readjust or reintroduce things into their surroundings lead to examples where planning and organic life come together. And these examples can be seen everywhere. So here to talk to us about the trajectory of urbanism is Witold Drypchinski, Professor Emeritus of Urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you, Professor, for being with us on the show. As non-experts in the field of cities and urbanism, we're really interested in the lens through which you understand built environments. So what are the main things that you notice about a city when you experience it for the first time? And what are the frameworks or structures that you use when thinking about cities that perhaps aren't so obvious to people outside the field of urbanism? The truth is we experience cities in so many different ways. For example, the cities that we grew up in, that we know intimately, are particular to us. Things happen to us on a, on a particular street corner or or we remember meeting somebody in a particular area. So that's a way of experiencing a city that's very personal. And of course, even strange cities, you can experience them in terms of food, in terms of climate, in terms of geography. I mean, if, if you visit San Francisco, what your first impression is of all the hills. And then secondly, of the, the views from those hills of the bay. And that, that defines so much of your experience of a city. So I think there's, there isn't one way of, of experiencing a place. There are, there are many different ways. It depends so much on the circumstance. I mean, are, are you doing something in the city? That's very different than just wandering around aimlessly as most tourists do. So uh, we, we sometimes think of experiencing a city in terms of tourism, but that's probably the worst way to experience a city. You're not there very long. You don't know anybody. You're not actually doing anything in the city. So you're, you're experiencing the city in a very odd way because most people in a city have a job to do and they're, they're not staring at the buildings. They're going about their business. And I think that that is an important distinction to make because uh, often people who write about cities, write about cities as if they're tourists in the city. And the tourist sees a very different city than a local. A local might look at a street corner and know that there was a crime committed there the week before and that this is actually a dangerous place. A tourist just sees a building. He doesn't have a context to put it in. And he thinks, oh, what an ugly building but he doesn't know anything about the building. He doesn't know who lived there. He doesn't have any personal contact with it. So I think that's an important distinction to make. When I did think about your question in terms of myself, because as an architect, I often experience, let's say cities that I haven't been in, in a more physical way I'm looking at. Uh, and that means, first of all, the spaces of the city, not so much buildings, but streets, alleys, squares, parks, the, the, the spaces that the, that the city encompasses. And of course, then the buildings 
are important, but not so much the, the major buildings, you know, the, the city hall or the opera house, but rather the nature or character of the buildings of the city itself, the buildings that line these streets or face the park or the waterfront or whatever the space is. Those are much more important in, I think, in the experience of a city than the important famous buildings, which tend to be sort of the icons of the city, a, a Big Ben or the Empire State Building. Uh, I mean, those are special buildings, but and in a the way they define those cities for people who may not even go to the city. So people know about the Empire State Building who have never been to New York. Uh, for New Yorkers, it's simply, it, it, isn't necessarily the most important thing about the city. For the longest time, it was the tallest building, but it wasn't, it, when you, when I've, I remember the first time I saw the Empire State Building, it was a sort of disappointment because it's just an office building and nothing happens special in it. It's, it's right on the sidewalk, like most buildings in New York. It doesn't have a kind of special place in the city. It's, uh, Rockefeller Center, in a way, is more satisfying for the visitor because it's it's such an unusual surroundings. It has the skating rink, uh, the plaza in the summer. It has it's sort of a celebration. It's, it is a special place. But the Empire State Building is just a building doing its job. So how you experience a city, I think, really is is there's so many different ways of experiencing it. Uh, which in a way, I suppose, may, is what the fascination of cities is about. It is, they're not one-dimensional by any means. And Professor, in your book, Makeshift Metropolis, you describe how much of the debate in the field of urbanism has centered around the balance between the intentions put forward by urban planners against the city life that often exists over and above those intentions. Could you share with us the trajectory of this debate and your reflections on how these two sides can be brought together? Sure. Uh, most cities, of course, are not planned or only parts of them are planned. Most cities grow in a sort of organic way, in a way that isn't anticipated often and unusual things happen is particularly in the past, most cities experienced major fires and large parts of those cities were destroyed. And that was often an opportunity to rebuild in, an, in a different way. Uh, so, so planning has been part of cities, but not a major part. And often the planned cities are not actually very important cities. So that if you read a book about planning, there are certain cities that will be included because they do have unusual plans. And in colonial America, for example, Savannah has a very unusual plan uh, because it's a sort of module of squares and streets that's repeated and, and was adhered to for a long time. But Savannah is not a very important city. Charleston is a much more important colonial city than Savannah. Uh, and it was a kind of a makeshift grid as, as most American cities were, uh, and one that was sort of improvised over time. They didn't adhere to it very strictly. Uh, so the plan of, of Charleston is not a particularly interesting to planners, uh, even though the city is actually an important colonial city, it was the fourth largest city in the American colonies. So uh, I, I was thinking about this because as an example of, of this tension between planning and not planning 
uh, I used to teach a course at Penn in the Wharton School on design and development. And it was a course about design, architecture, urban design, for, but not for architects, but for MBAs and real estate majors, and, and also for planners who were interested in real estate development. And I noticed there was a, a big difference between the planning students and the business students, because the planning students were interested not in the world as it is, but the, the world that could be. What should a city, how should a city be planned? What, what, was, what should people have? What sort of open spaces should they have? Or what, what were the solutions that would improve their lives in the opinion of the planners? Uh, the business students, they were both, I should say, both groups were very interested in cities. So it wasn't that, it, that there was no difference, but the business students tended to try to understand the world as it actually was, not the world as it should be, because they were trying to, the ones in my class were business people who were business students who were thinking of becoming developers. And a developer has to, doesn't want to do what he wants to do or what he should do. He's trying to figure out what people want because if they don't want it, he's gonna go out of business. A good idea is not an idea that you like, it's the idea that your customers or your clients will like. So their attitude towards the city was very different. They were trying to understand how the city worked and what was it that people wanted. It didn't all, it wasn't always to repeat what was there. I mean, planners have new ideas. Develop, I should say developers come up with new ideas, which people often take to, and, and they like that. An example for the Atrium Hotel was a, a relatively new idea that a developer architect invented, and, and it became a tremendous success. And there are this was done, I guess, in the 1980s. Uh, but in the decades that followed, there were atriums built in cities all over the world. So the, the problem with planning is that it, it is a, a group which of people who want to make decisions for other people. And that, that's always a tricky thing to do. And there were, I remember an interesting conversation at one point between students and the the planners were said, well, this is the way it should, this is what should happen. And the, the business students said, well, why don't you just do it? You know, if you think it's a good idea, take the risk and do it. And of course the, the plant, that's not how planners work. Planners are civic employees. They don't risk anything. The business, the developer risks real things. He risks his income and Sometimes it's even a personal risk. And if the idea doesn't work, he's the person that takes the blame and, and, take, and takes the risk. The planner doesn't take any risk. The planner is telling people what to do, but it's not, it's not his money, it's not his risk. Uh, and that's always been a problem for me with planning because there's no discipline there. Planners come up with really crazy ideas. The planning profession in the 60s destroyed American cities by and large. And, and Still, the effects can be seen in Eastern Europe and um, in parts of Western Europe, but particularly in Eastern Europe, where the central authorities had so much power, they, they did very destructive things. And, and similarly, in, in America, they, everybody jumped on this bandwagon of, of urban renewal and high-rise buildings, and the results have been awful. And we've been sort of trying to remedy them in the last decades 
but there are, you know, the highways that run through the middle of cities, there are highways that, the put, uh, building a new highway was one of the beliefs of that time. Of course, there aren't that, it's not so easy to build, to find places. So often the river sides and the water sides became the place where they built the highway, which of course is horrible because people like to get to the water, but now we can't because of these barriers. So planning has created some awful mistakes. It's really sometimes surprising that the profession survived the, the 1960s because, because they really messed it up. Uh, they had a theory which was not tested uh, and it proved to be wrong. Uh, but by then, of course, the, when you build a city, it's there and it lasts a long time and people have to live with it. So uh, we, we can still see the effect of that period. It's important to remember cities last an awful long time. Cities generally don't disappear. It, it happens occasionally. There are certain industrial cities that have almost disappeared or shrunk. Uh, but generally speaking, cities that are built last hundreds of years. And so whatever is done is going to be there for a long time and people will have to cope with it. think of recent cities that have opted to plan and manage their growth, places like Dubai come to mind, like cities where, for example, there are communities of thousands of houses that have been master planned and where there are clear plans for the future shape of the city. In practice, how can we steer the growth of cities while ensuring they retain an organic life of their own? I mean, Dubai is an exception because it's a monarchy. And a monarch can simply make decisions the way that monarchs did in Europe, you know, in the 17th century or the Pope did in Rome. So that's an, that's unusual since in most, uh, most states, uh, even the monarchs are simply symbolic and, and decisions are taken in very different ways. I'm skeptical that you can plan a city and end up with anything good just because the historical record tends to show the opposite. It shows that cities grow organically, problems arise that aren't foreseen. Cities are always changing and, and there are decisions made, but generally speaking, it's, it's always safer to sort of proceed slowly and try things out on a small scale rather than making really big gestures. I was, I was recently writing about Isfahan, which was replanned in the 17th century. And it's a very interesting example of trying to balance planning and, and not planning because the uh, Shah built a new city. It was a new capital for, for Persia. And he built entirely new sections, a great Maidan, which was a big open space, completely unprecedented, sort of a, a kind of grand projet in the Parisian sense. At, at the same time, he didn't destroy the old city, which, which, you, which he might have done. He might have just demolished the old part of the city and, and built an entirely new one. But they restored the old city. They, they restored the old market and Kasbah and connected the new and the old. You got a sense that they had an understanding that there was a value in this old city 
And the new city did not imitate the old city, so that they built a much more greener, not not a dense kasbah at all. But they did they kept the kasbah and they did they renovated houses and so on. So that's a perhaps an example of of the rare case. Some because if for example, if you were building a new capital city as the Shah was doing. You have to you have to make some big decisions. Uh, similarly, if you're building Washington D.C. Uh, in in the 18th century, you have to make big decisions. You can't say, "Well, let's just wait and let it grow organically." So there are moments like this where large plans are necessary, but it, there aren't that many of these moments. Dubai is certainly not a moment. It's a it's a horrible city. I've never been there, but from the outside. Uh, it's not going to be one of the great cities of urban history, I'm sure. But on the other hand, there have been many examples. I mentioned fires. Um, most cities burned more than once up until quite recently. It's surprising in most cases, the new city is actually a replica of the old city, the street grid, not the architecture. They, once streets are laid out and properties are, you know, are owned by individuals, Starting completely over is very difficult. So cities that have been destroyed in wartime or by fire or by flood tend to rebuild on the on the bones of what was there before, rather than starting something totally new. I, when the the Great Fire of London in the 17th century, there were rad, radical plans to rebuild the city and with a totally new plan, a sort of baroque plan with squares and. It looks a little bit like Washington would look. None of those were followed. They basically, they built new buildings, but they they kept the streets that were there simply for common sense. And also I think uh, partly for common sense because of property ownership and partly because people are used to something and they want to have it back. I mean, if you're if your house is damaged, you tend to rebuild it the way it was. You don't say, oh, now I can build a totally different house. You, you always have that option, but most people tend to repair things rather than start all over from scratch in a new direction. So I think that that tension between planning and not planning is, is there, but generally speaking, the not planning takes precedence. One, because it's impossible to predict what will happen. And because cities last such a long time uh, and are used for such a long time, it's impossible to know a hundred years from now, are we going to have cars or not have cars? I mean, are, you're not going to make a grand plan for cars. Louis Kahn, the Philadelphia architect made a grand plan. It was sort of, it was half real. It wasn't, it was a sort of utopian plan, but it had huge parking garages. It, would, it was a complete investment in automobile as a way of moving around the city. Uh, if it would have been disastrous if that had been built because we would have been stuck with it. And these huge parking garages, it's very hard to convert a parking garage into anything except a parking garage. It's got sloping floors and low ceilings. It's not the sort of building that lends itself to other uses. And these huge parking garages would have been, we would have been stuck with them. These were very large. They looked sort of like the Roman Colosseum. They were huge circular structures. The architects were, of course, very excited about all this. But, uh, you know, looking back now, almost 60, 80 years, we can see it would not have been the right thing to do. And it's quite possible that in another 100 years, 
there won't be, either there won't be any private car ownership or cars will have been replaced by something else. So generally speaking, planning, I think, has to proceed very slowly and carefully and and avoid the sort of promise of utopian solutions to things. So, Professor, in your book, Mysteries of the Mall, you talk about how certain cities have often maintained or sometimes even revived technologies or places because they bring a certain authentic or nostalgic charm to its surroundings. What are your observations on the way that cities choose to portray a sense of authenticity and the function that this has played? I think that in that uh, article, I was referring to tourism particularly because most large cities, although some of them have important financial sectors, they all have very important tourist sectors. Tourism has become a major urban industry. Uh, in New York City, I think it's the same size as the financial industry. So it's very important. It's easy to forget how unusual that is. People did not go to cities for vacations in the past. People went to cities because they had business in cities, but if they went on vacation, they went to the country, they went to Switzerland, they went mountain climbing, or they went to the lake country in England. They didn't visit a city. You didn't go to London on holiday, but that's all changed now. So it's a new kind of urban industry it happens to be a very complicated industry. It's not easy. An economist friend of mine says that the tourist cities are manufacturing cities, but what they're manufacturing is fun. It's very difficult to manufacture fun, it turns out. You know, everybody's idea of fun is different. Uh, it's a very competitive field because if your city doesn't appeal to me, I can go to Las Vegas or I can go to Orlando, or I can go to Paris, or like an old city. So the consumer, the tourist has a huge choice, uh, especially with, with airline travel and, and easy and so on. So it's, it's actually a difficult industry. It's not an industry, it's not like making shoes or machinery, which is relatively easy. You make it and then you ship it out. Uh, you have to keep the tourist happy all the time. And, and when people go on vacation, they become different people. They become very choosy. I remember a friend of mine who runs a hotel in Philadelphia said that if you're at home and you, know, you, you go into your bathroom and one of the towels fell off the rack, you just put it back. You don't even think about it. But if you go to a hotel bathroom and one of the towels is on the floor, it's like you think, what's going on? This is a terrible, and you complain. and. And you know why isn't it? Why isn't everything perfect? So you expect it to be perfect. Tourists expect their urban experience to be perfect, which is of course almost unurban. I mean, cities are messy and they're not predictable, and they're they're far from perfect. So it's it's actually not easy to be a tourist city, even though most cities are trying to be tourist cities because, in some ways, they don't have choice, and in another way. It's, it's very attractive. Uh, I mean, you can tax tourists and they don't notice. Uh, and so it's a great source of income for a city. It's also the case that, you know, we, we, people go on vacation for a week or two, their normal budget sort of thinking changes for that week. They don't mind paying extra for, for restaurants or they don't even notice the hotel tax 
so it's it's a kind of attractive industry for urban politicians. Yet it's a, in fact very complicated one to pull off. And you know, in a way, it's like if you're in a hotel and everybody's always very polite to you and everybody's helpful and the you know the person opens the door and they they if you have a problem they solve it for you imagine if the whole city has to be like that because it does a tourist city if a tourist is in a city he he expects to be helped he expects things you know directions to be clear and he he wants everything to be clean if if you walk down a street and you're on vacation and there's garbage in the street, you feel bad it's because it's your vacation. It's supposed to be a great time and, and you're disappointed. So uh, it's actually not an easy industry. It's, it's one that I think all cities are trying to pull off. And Las Vegas is a, actually a very good example of, of a city that does pull it off. One of the ways they do it is they keep renewing themselves. Las Vegas, if you go to Las Vegas one year after the next, it's all different. They, there are more exciting things and new things and and weirder things and you know exploding mountains and whatever it is. But of course, a, a tour, a, if you want the tourists to return more than once, that's what you need. Uh, especially if you're not a very old, you know, Paris can get by with Notre Dame and beautiful old buildings and museums, but a new tourist city doesn't have all that. Doesn't have an opera that people can go to or a theater or I mean, not just an opera, but a famous opera or a famous museum. So, so it has to manufacture those experiences, which is much more difficult. So I think that what you mentioned about creating experiences, I think old established cities simply maintain what was there. And, and a city like Paris, it, it adds new things periodically, new museums, or it refreshes museums. But it also has an enormous stock of things like theaters and museums that it can count on. You have the Louvre, which was established by Napoleon. It was it it has a pyramid, which is very new and exciting. But it's also, of course, a, a beautiful, huge old museum. So the old cities don't need to manufacture it. The new cities have to in some ways manufacture those experiences to a greater extent. They, it's not just about uh, preserving something. You have to keep. And of course, they can't compete. Cities, you know, all cities are in competition with each other these days. Because of travel, people don't just go to the city in their region. They can pick any city in the world. So it's highly competitive, which, uh, which means that uh, Cities are trying to outdo each other and a, a new city, of course, doesn't have old museums and old architecture, so it has to create something new. Otherwise, people will, will simply ignore it. So it's, it's uh, probably a difficult period in some ways for cities. Uh, of course, now where people are not traveling and that may all change, but certainly in the previous decades, this ability to move around the world, which is kind of very exciting in some ways, but has made life much more difficult in some ways for cities, which can't count on a sort of regional uh, group of consumers that are just going there. Midwesterners used to just go to Chicago or something. If they wanted warmth, they would go to Los Angeles. Whereas now they can go to Hawaii, they can go to or they can keep going, they can visit India, or they can visit Indonesia. So the, there's, it's much more difficult uh, for cities to attract people. And so you see 
much more attempts to, to do sometimes outlandish things to catch attention. to Professor Obchinsky for taking us through the different waves of thinking about cities and how our experiences of cities are really shaped by our participation in them. And it really raises the question of who the city is being built for and whether we're now prioritizing people who spend or ultimately people who live in these cities. And going back to how we started the episode in terms of national museums, it hasn't just been the case that the way that spaces are designed have particular purposes, but also the city as a whole, much like national museums, can have their own significance in why they're built. And we touched a little bit on Washington being the capital of America and the way that it was planned to suit that purpose. But as a matter of fact, a number of different capitals around the world were precisely built at large from scratch, including places like Brasilia and Canberra. And Egypt is even currently building its new capital. And so in this way, it's exciting and important to look at the purpose behind the spaces that we live in and the meaning that they hold. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments, or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.